Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. Today, the rehab and addiction treatment business is a $35 billion industry. While there are many reputable service providers, there are also many that are willing to exploit those suffering from substance use disorder, and these are people in their greatest time of need. Today, we're going to talk about the most prolific addiction treatment scams, and my guest today, actually, he struggled with substance use disorder himself beginning back in his teens. And he drew on his experience navigating the system and being exposed to many of these things when he decided to found Recovery X, which is a new resource to introduce addiction treatment program options that are available and connect people with those trusted programs for their specific needs. What really drew me to Recovery X is it's, as they put it, it's a growing movement of experts, thought leaders, and people in recovery who are committed to providing high-quality addiction recovery resources to people that are in need. I think that safety net is is just, it's long overdue and well-needed out there. Welcome, Dan Seveny, co-founder of Recovery X. Nice to have you with us today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay. So let's start at the kind of the beginning for you. You started using as a teen and so let's talk just a little bit about that and then your challenges of actually getting help. Yeah, definitely. So I would say actually uh, the story goes back a little further uh, to childhood, right? Um, as a kid, I was always very sensitive, had a really hard time communicating and relating to other people and uh, just struggled a lot uh, with connection with people. Um, so over time, obviously had behavioral problems throughout school and later on in my teens was, uh, started to experiment with drugs and alcohol as a way to sort of numb that feeling of emptiness, numb that feeling of loneliness. And, uh, it worked, you know, it worked for a while, definitely early on started out actually stealing my parents, alcohol, stealing my dad's Ritalin and would just do it by myself at home when I was like 11 years old. Whoa, at 11. So you started really young. Yeah, just, uh, you know, I needed, an es- I needed an escape. I I just felt, you know, I felt so much and didn't really know how to deal with those feelings. And, you know, I had a, a pretty great childhood. Uh, for a long time, my story was that my childhood was fucked up. Can I swear on this show? Sure. Okay. <laughs> Uh, uh, you just did. <laughs> yeah. You broke the seal. Apologies. Uh, yeah, so I had a, a story that my childhood was messed up, that my dad was never there. And in part, that was true. But for the most part, I had a pretty stable childhood. I had a roof over my head. I had uh, parents that loved me. I had siblings. And, uh, you know, we always had food on the table. So things were good overall. But, you know, I think the way that a kid will perceive things is not the way an adult would perceive things. And a lot of, I had a lot of trouble as a kid with the way I would perceive things. Uh, 
and took a lot of things really, really hard. So the drugs and alcohol were kind of a solution to that over hypersensitivity, if that makes sense. So you struggled as you were growing up and your brain was developing and you couldn't connect anywhere. And so you use drugs and alcohol as an escape, like so many young kids do. Yeah, absolutely. And then later on into high school, uh, the same drugs and alcohol sort of became a way of socially connecting with other kids. So there was that aspect of it as well. So when did you find help and how? Uh, I, well, I started going to therapy maybe, I'm not even sure. I think I got kicked out of eighth grade, uh, sent to a boarding school after that. So I guess that was my first experience of getting help, but that wasn't really for drug problems. That was more for behavioral modification sort of a thing. Uh, and then spent the next, from that time until the time I was 15 or 14, uh, in and out of different behavioral mod programs, which were pretty awful, not going to lie. And finally made my way to public high school, which was my goal all along, because I just wanted to be a normal kid. I wanted to be like everybody else uh, and not not set apart or put somewhere else. So you're going back and, and uh, back to uh, 13 years ago, 14 years ago, when uh, when you were struggling to uh, get help uh, for at that time, it was just behavioral issues. Right. Well, I was I was using drugs, but it hadn't become such an apparent problem. I was using the Ritalin uh, that I was stealing from my dad, or painkillers that I could steal from my dad, or alcohol, but it wasn't an, a daily thing that was the primary issue. Yeah, an emerging problem. Yeah. But right. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So take us from there. So yeah, the the first time I was exposed to real drug and alcohol treatment was when I was 16 years old. I'd been in high school for a year in public high school. Uh, like I said, I was using drugs uh, pretty much every not everything at that point. Everything that a a young teenager might be using, so marijuana, alcohol, uh, any various types of pills, etc. And I was still having the same problems, but using those drugs and alcohol to sort of mask them got arrested for having a confrontation with another teen uh, where I stabbed him. And from there, I got sent to a program. Luckily, I, I got uh, a rehabilitation program. Um, so, whoa, that's, I mean, yeah. that's more, more, more than a confrontation. <laughs> yeah. You stabbed the guy. Yeah, yeah. So speak to that. How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's really hard to say. At, at that time, it just, you know, our brains aren't really developed yet, so we're not thinking in terms of long-term consequences. Uh, I had been, I'd started experimenting with things like cocaine and heroin. Uh, myself and that kid had gotten into a couple other confrontations, just fistfights before that, uh, ultimately leading to the third time where I, I stabbed him. So um, was it commonplace for you guys and your posse there to carry knives? Um. I don't know that it was commonplace or not, but it, it, yeah, I don't know. It was definitely out of, out of character for my little town where I grew up. It was, I grew up in Bar Harbor, Maine, which for people that know the area, it's a very quiet, sleepy sort of vacation town for some people. It's where Acadia National Park is. So it definitely, you know, made, made some news in the local area when it happened just because it was not so, you know, it's not a rough neighborhood or anything like that. Yeah. It sounds like Mayberry and you're showing up with the, you know, the other kids out there hanging out and you've suddenly got a knife. That's, 
It just sounds like it probably was way out of character, I, I would guess. Okay, I should probably explain the reference to Mayberry. Mayberry is actually a fictional, idyllic small town in North Carolina that was featured in the 1960s sitcom Andy of Mayberry. So, take us from there. Yeah, so got sent to a program in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, you know, at that time, drug and alcohol rehab programs were pretty sort of new on the scene, and a lot of it was, uh, you know, giving you a safe place to stay, drug testing you, driving you to and from AA meetings. You might do some process groups, but that was really about it. Uh, and and also, as soon as you get there, you see a psychiatrist, they put you on some, you know, mood stabilizers, uh, and that was sort of my experience of, of rehab the first time around. So this is somewhere in the neighborhood of 2006, 2007? Yeah. Okay. And so at some point you found uh, DBT and that became very important in your recovery. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I love talking about DBT because it has been more than just important. I would say it's sort of the, the cornerstone of my recovery and my life today, just because it has given me the tools that I need to deal with difficult emotions, uh, deal with difficult situations. So basically what it is, uh, if I could explain it succinctly, I would say that it starts with mindfulness. Uh, a lot of times we have reactions to things and we don't know why we're, we're reacting that way. And it happens so fast that we, you know, an event happens outside of us. We have an interpretation of that event and a thought around that interpretation. And that makes us feel a certain way, which is a, a a body feeling, right? So say somebody slams a door in your face, your interpretation of that event might be, well, this guy is disrespecting me. Uh, your thought would be that you feel disrespected, or the feeling from that thought would be that you feel disrespected uh, and you might lash out in anger because you feel attacked. Now, anger is actually the correct emotion to feel if you're being attacked. What you learn in DBT is how to reframe those situations and look at it from a different way, recognizing that sometimes our perception or initial interpretation is going to be off. So you look at the facts of the situation, a door got slammed in your face, but what are some alternative possibilities? Uh, that person might be in a rush, maybe they're, you know, maybe a parent is in the hospital and they have to get there quickly. So they slam the door, they're not paying attention or whatever. It, uh, at the end of the day, no matter what, it probably had nothing to do with you. So if you change the thought, you can change how you feel and you can change how you respond rather than react to the situation. DBT is a cognitive behavioral treatment developed in the 1980s to treat people with borderline personality disorder. The theory behind DBT is some people are prone to react in a more intense and really out-of-the-ordinary manner towards certain emotional situations. Extreme swings in their emotions causes them to jump from one crisis to another, alienating all those around them. DBT is a method for teaching them the behavioral skills necessary to manage their sudden, intense surges of emotion. And it's now used to treat a number of behavioral disorders, including substance use disorder. Dialectical behavior therapy, or DBT, really worked well for you because oftentimes you found yourself in a situation where 
you would react and go off in extremes, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, I was very sensitive as a kid and even as an adult, you know, very sensitive, would take things maybe, I don't want to say the wrong way. I would, that's the other thing. With DBT, it's, you're not taking it the wrong way. There's many, many different interpretations. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- those, those two things kind of made the, the perfect storm and, and me a good candidate for DBT, for sure. This Cover 2 podcast is sponsored by Relink.org. Relink.org is an online research tool that allows you to quickly locate addiction recovery and reentry resources in your area. It includes everything from treatment to housing and employment. Go to Relink.org today to find services or add a resource for free. With Relink.org, help is just three clicks away. When, uh, when you decided that you wanted to really turn your life around and you wanted recovery, you started uh, navigating some of the resources that were available to you, and you were exposed to some scams that are commonly seen in the rehab industry. So let's talk about some of those and some of the things, and, and maybe we can get your perspective on some of those common scams that are out there. They just, it's scary. They, they, uh, they're out there and people fall, you know, get exploited uh, every day to these things. So patient brokering, have you been exposed to that? Yeah, actually. So uh, I, I actually didn't want to get clean and sober. So the way I, uh, when I first got into recovery back when I was 16, you know, it took years and years and years of sort of being in and out of these programs. And it wasn't until my 20s, uh, mid 20s that I really, really wanted it and things started to change. So I just want to make that clear. Uh, it wasn't like an overnight sort of fix like that. Um, but patient brokering is definitely a very big problem. And that was one that I hadn't experienced myself until very recently and was sort of the catalyst for why we started Recovery X. I was working in marketing and communications before we started Recovery X. And a friend of mine, I would sometimes get uh, calls from friends and family who knew someone that needed help and I would help them find help. Um, a friend of mine's mom called me. He was in desperate need of help. Uh, he'd been strung out on Xanax and was really, you know, things were looking really bad for him. He couldn't stop getting arrested, couldn't stop blacking out, you know. And typically when you see uh, that escalation of problems happening, it really starts to spiral out really, really fast. And at that point, you're looking at either a lengthy uh, stay in prison or death. You know, it's it's it gets serious. So. I was really, I was looking for resources and I contacted somebody who owned a sober living that I'd been to back when, you know, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be clean. So they might not have had like the, the most strict rules there. And I, I should have, in retrospect, you know, realized that this person might not have been somebody I can trust. But, um, you know, I wish, I wish I'd known then what I know now. So I asked him for a referral to find out where he could go because I didn't know where to send somebody for a rehab. I'd only had sober living homes and, you know, other resources like that. So he sent me this information for this rehab in South Florida and, uh, you know, got my friend there, got him on the airplane, got him down there. Come to find out later on that this guy had received a kickback from that place and that it was poorly run, that there were people there that weren't even there for addiction and 
you know, they didn't even really realize that it was a drug and alcohol rehab. Uh, they were there for like depression or anxiety. Uh, and they really dropped the ball in the aftercare. You know, they had him, they put him in a sober living home. They were doing this, this thing where they give you free or cheap sober living after rehab. Uh, and then they can bill your insurance for IOP or outpatient, which is also, I'm, I'm not sure if it's illegal yet, but certainly in some areas, I think it might be. It is. That's called patient enticement. Yeah. And uh, it's incentivizing patients to enter or stay or switch uh, facilities. Yeah. Money's, money, gifts, free flights, food, um, cell phones even. Yeah. yeah. So I felt I felt really, really awful about that. And I felt, you know, they failed him. Uh, I felt in the way I had failed him. Um, and he has not recovered from that since he's still he's back using drugs. He does. You know, his ex- first experience with recovery was so bad that he doesn't even want to give it another shot. So that was tough. Uh, and and dealing with his mom was really tough. You know, I really. Uh, I really admire and respect all the parents out there that go through this because it is so, so hard. Uh, you know, the look on parents' faces is when their kid is going through this is just like, it's like they are shell-shocked. You know, it's almost like they walked out of a war zone. Uh, and when he was safe and in the rehab, you know, she was a completely different person. So to have, you know, failed him, have failed her was really, really devastating. And I, I vowed at that moment not to let that happen again uh, with myself or other people. So we started Recovery X, uh, hoping to educate people on addiction recovery and hoping to help ethical, quality treatment providers communicate better and rise above everyone else who can kind of hide behind the internet, hide behind all these different you know, marketing and advertising platforms um, and, and give a voice to those that are actually willing to stand up for doing the right thing and providing quality treatment. So what sets Recovery X apart from other services that advise people on their recovery options? Uh, what sets us apart from other services that advise people? I would say that we're going to provide the right option. We're going to listen to whoever contacts us and find out what exactly they need, what they've already tried before, uh, and really do our best to educate them and send them to the right option, not just us. Uh, and we do have we do work with ethical quality treatment providers to create content, uh, but it's not your typical advertising marketing content. Uh, all of our content is to educate and inform. So we really help them do that in, in an authentic way. And if we ever do recommend one of our sponsors of the show, we make sure to clearly disclose that in multiple ways. So I, I really like uh, the way that you present yourselves with complete and utter transparency. I think that that's really, really important in this business. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those values are things that uh, I value in business and in life. And I think they're just so important, especially when it comes to addiction. Uh, a lot of what keeps people in addiction is the shame and the, you know, the fear of being exposed, the stigma. Uh, so we really try to show people that it's okay to be authentic about what you're going through. Uh, and from the, the provider side, the more authentic and transparent we can help these providers be, the more authentic and transparent we can be really the better 
the industry will be overall. You know, the, the, the more quality programs, the more quality providers will start to emerge. So let's talk through how your process works. Yeah, sure. So people can contact us through our website, recoveryx.org, or through our Facebook page. Somebody can come to us and say, uh, they can say anything, I need help, right? And we'll ask them some questions, basically, you know, what kind of treatment have you tried before? Uh, tell us a little more about your situation. What exactly are you looking for? Um, you know, do you have financial resources? Do you need free options? Um, and basically find out what exactly they need um, in terms of their life, not just, you know, it's not just, hey, I'm looking for a rehab, help me find a rehab. We're actually going to look at, uh, do you have a job that you need to keep? Do you have family that you need to be near? Or, you know, just really every every aspect of their life and taking that into account, that way we can make the best recommendation possible or recommendations. We'll give them as many options as possible. And we like to include videos uh, of people that we've interviewed if we do recommend them. I think part of recovery, a part, an aspect that's just so important is finding your purpose. And I know you found your purpose in, in while you were still, I think you were still locked up at the time. Isn't that when you found SEO and uh, <laughs> you, you became good at uh, online marketing? I was in sober living, uh, a sober living home in Los Angeles when I started doing SEO. Somebody else that lived there put me onto it. I want to talk just a little bit about your knowledge of SEO because I think that's another area where people get exploited every day when it comes to looking for help. So Definitely. give us some insights in, into that and, and in terms of when you go online, what to be wary of. Uh, I would be wary of everything online, to be completely honest with you. If it's not uh, anything on Google is, you know, it's not paid, but the people with the biggest marketing budgets who can buy the most SEO services are going to rank at the top. And oftentimes I know, uh, uh, let's see, last week tonight, there was a good expose on this kind of thing where the top results on Google are all owned by a few companies. Um, and oftentimes that relationship isn't disclosed. So I think that's the danger that people face when they're searching for help online is that relationships aren't uh, disclosed and you don't know why somebody is sending you to the place they're sending you. So a lot of times either the treatment center is going to own uh, a directory and you're going to call a number and they're going to refer you to their treatment center or a marketing agency is going to own a directory that ranks at the top of Google and they're going to refer you to whoever's going to pay them, which is obviously problematic because you're not getting referred to somebody that actually fits your needs. So what do you recommend for people? How, how should they go about searching for help if they're using an online resource? What should they do? I would say come to Recovery X. We'll take care of you. We'll help you out. Uh, I would also, you can also call around and, and try talking to different providers. Uh, we've done a few interviews with providers where we've asked them what questions that somebody should ask. So some of the things that they told us were, you know, first of all, if somebody claims a high success rate, hang up the phone because no one can really, one, success is hard to define or impossible. Uh, measuring success is incredibly difficult because a lot of it is done by the treatment center and just done by follow-up phone calls. So if your treatment center calls you a month after you got out and says, hey, uh, are you still sober? Somebody who's using is probably going to say yes just so they can get them off their back. And the treatment center is more than happy to accept that answer because it improves their outcome numbers. So 
anyone that's going to lead with their success rate is probably the wrong fit. Um, I would also say anyone that's going to pay for your flight to their their treatment center, uh, something shady is going on there. So I don't know. There's, there's a lot of things to be on the lookout for. I would definitely recommend just asking lots of questions and, you know, being wary of somebody trying to upsell or hard sell you. Uh, but what's really, really difficult about this, even even with this advice, even armed with this information, uh, a parent, somebody who is desperate to save the life of their son or daughter is not necessarily in a, a great mental spot to be uh, aware of this stuff. And they've never had experience with these types of people or programs, so they don't know what's normal. So I think that puts people looking for help at a great disadvantage. So I would really encourage people to come check out Recovery X. Uh, shoot me a message. I'm always available to talk. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's what I would say. And you've, there's how many of you on staff who all have experience with this and, and are all available to advise? Sure. We've got three full-time people. We've got a handful of, uh, professional contributors who help us interview people as well as people in recovery that help us interview as well. And we're looking for more volunteers for people that want to help us spread awareness and join us in interviewing experts, thought leaders, and people in recovery. So Definitely, if you want to put that out for us, we'd love to have more on board. So if someone wants to, they, they just want to seek out your advice, what's the cost for that? Uh, we don't charge anything. RecoveryX is free. Uh, we are funded by donations as well as our work creating branded content, sponsored content on the channel. So Dan, what's your reach? Is it a national reach? Is it regional? Tell me about that. Uh, that's a good question. I think our reach is mostly uh, national just because that's where we've been focusing most of our, our efforts. We're, we've been interviewing a lot of people, uh, you know, U.S.-based people. But we do actually have a pretty decent following right now in the U.K. as well. We've got some cool experts that we've been working with from there that, uh, yeah, seems to be spreading. So that's cool. So no matter where someone is located throughout the country, if they had questions about getting help in their region, you'd be able to help them and give them unbiased information about that. Absolutely. So some successes. Do you have some successes that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to give too many details just for people's privacy. Um, but but we've been able to place you know hundreds of people, uh, I would say, in various either programs or helping them find uh, local resources, hooking them up with people in their area. So it's definitely been a, a pretty great success. And I have to say it's been one of the most fulfilling and most satisfying things I've ever been able to be a part of. So I'm really grateful for that. Well, Dan, I want to thank you for joining me today and, and uh, really sharing your insight into a lot of these areas where people can be led astray when it comes to getting help and sharing the Recovery X story. What else would you like to leave our listeners with? Uh, I just want to say thanks for listening. Uh, we would love to have you over at Recovery X to join us in our community and help us continue to spread awareness for addiction recovery. Thanks so much. And to find Recovery X on the web, they would go to? Uh, we're at recoveryx.org, or you can find us on Facebook, uh, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, anywhere podcasts are played under Recovery X. Outstanding. Well, Dan, thanks again for, uh, for joining me today. This is, uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Greg. I really appreciate it. We've been joined today by Dan Seveny, 
the co-founder of RecoveryX, a growing movement of experts, thought leaders, and people in recovery who are committed to providing high-quality addiction recovery resource recommendations to people in need across our country. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.